What's that sound? That's the sweet sound of bacon. I like bacon. You like bacon. I like a biblical narrative podcast with Andy Rigoni. You like a biblical narrative podcast with Andy Rigoni. So, what is this? Biblical details, historical context that puts you in the action. And with that, let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Biblical Narratives podcast and blog. I'm so glad you're getting into this and sharing this with others. If you have questions or comments, please don't hesitate to ask. You can always email me directly if you like. And if you're fascinated by what you're reading and hearing, and only if you're loving this, then tell a friend. At the end of this podcast, I would like to summarize one of the key issues happening in the early church. So be sure to stay tuned. Have you ever been snubbed by somebody? Nobody likes to be rejected, yet, ironically, we're all pretty familiar with what it feels like from both ends. We feel rejected when we fall short of somebody else's expectations of us. Conversely, we feel deeply accepted and regarded when we exceed the expectations of others. That's just how the world works. The good news is that we don't have to live by the expectations of frail and faltering human beings no matter how many of them have it all together, so it seems. God has provided another way for us to live. Ultimately, God is the one who sets the expectations, though none of us could possibly adhere to them apart from the Spirit of God. If anyone would be right in rejecting us, though, it would be God. But God has made his acceptance available to us through Jesus, his chosen one, who has satisfied God completely. Now, what happens when the very people who have been rejected by another group of people choose not to do in kind? Instead of rejecting their rejectors, this group of people who have been deeply impacted by the love of Christ come to the aid of many who have flat out rejected them. Fortunately, the cooler heads of the apostles have prevailed and the assembly in Antioch has come to the aid of those in Jerusalem. Crazy, right? So, as we get into our podcast, we see Barnabas has recruited Saul to help him teach a huge group of Gentile believers at the request of the apostles in Jerusalem. While many Jewish Christ followers were not too favorable to this idea, the apostles believed God was deeply at work among the Gentiles, and they wanted to be on board with the movement of God. And we'll flesh all of this out towards the end of our podcast. But in the meantime, let's get into it. Acts chapter eleven twenty six through 30. Brothers and sisters, please listen for a moment. Barnabas holds up both hands in order to garner the attention of an otherwise noisy room. The conversations bounce off the walls in the courtyard and slowly begin to die down. A beaming Barnabas continues on. I love the energy you're bringing to our time together, as we learn to better understand the work of the Holy Spirit and the unfolding of God's new covenant promises. It seems like this room gets smaller each time we meet, Barnabas says as he surveys the courtyard. Looking over at Saul, Barnabas continues to address the room. We have been steadily instructing you for the better part of a year now, and we've managed not only to grow here, but in many places across Antioch. So many assemblies continue to faithfully gather throughout the city that we're certainly gaining the attention of the city's leadership and the Romans. But God has been gracious to us all along because nobody sees us as a threat. Well, how can they when the love of Christ shows through each one of you? Barnabas pauses for a moment. I'm so proud of each and every one of you. 
You bring so much joy to my heart. Even those who may not trust you or have refused to see for themselves cannot speak ill of you. Barnabas delights in this statement. The Holy Spirit has poured himself into you so that you reflect the love of God in the way that you treat others. This love is an others first sort of love. It's not a self-promoting sort of love. It's a sacrificial love that demonstrates that you care for others more than you care for yourselves. It's a love that proves that God is in you sort of love. I am thankful to God for your commitment to him. And it's such a commitment that has caused others in the city to see you as atheists, as deserters, as traitors. They see you as forsaking their gods, their culture, and their values. And they don't like it. And furthermore, they blame us for it. Moreover, they blame Jesus for it. Looking up at the crowd to digest what has been spoken, Barnabas takes another beat. The spirit of truth promised by Jesus has come among us and has been guiding us into all truth. For we know what he receives is from the Father. As we aim to be guided by the Spirit of God, we know God's peace will be upon us and that the final victory shall be ours. Why? Barnabas waits for the room to respond. Excited to respond, the room chants aloud. In this world we will have tribulation, but take courage, for he has overcome the world. Moved by the moment, Barnabas continues. He has done what? The room responds again. He has overcome the world. May it be so, Barnabas asks. May it be so, the congregation responds. Yes, may it be so, Barnabas repeats. Here is an interesting development that has been brought to my attention. With our rapid growth, many see this as a passing fad, whereas some are excited to see what might develop. Even those who don't like us are calling us Christians, little Christs who seem to reflect the character of our Lord. Barnabas takes a moment to process this. You know, I've been called worse. This receives a laugh from many in the room. Laughing with them, Barnabas continues with a level of self-effacement. I look at myself and I think about how I dress. I mean, look at these formal Jewish robes. I think about my long Hebrew beard and how it must appear to you, well, you much more modern types here in Antioch. Oh, I'm pretty hip back in Jerusalem, but here, I can't say that my sense of fashion is quite caught on here. I'm surprised that any of you would be seen with me in public. The room laughs again. Oh, wait. Maybe that's why we're meeting in a private house. More laughter. Hmm, maybe that's why I see many of you dodging me when I'm out in the streets. Barnabas laughs at himself again. Yet perhaps the coolest name I could possibly be called, even though it might be intended out of ridicule, is a name that reflects the very one who gave me the Spirit of God and permanent access to the Father. I'm a little Christ, a Christian, Barnabas pauses. He then looks up and thanks God. A huge smile comes across his face, and he looks around at the crowd once again. Works for me. Bursting into laughter, the room erupts with several, may it be so, chants. Seeing that he has engaged the room, Barnabas looks over at Saul, who takes his cue to stand. Turning around to acknowledge the countless amount of people in the courtyard, Saul takes a moment to explain what is happening next. If you've been around us for any amount of time, then you know what we do during this part of our gathering. It's good for us to recognize our allegiance to our Savior, Jesus. 
He has come, laid the important groundwork of the promised new covenant, and he will soon return to rule on David's throne. Our job is to advance the kingdom of heaven through the love of Christ. And one way to get back to this most important mission of God is to worship him together through the recitation of a hymn. If you don't know this particular hymn, A Joking Saul Waits a Beat, just stick around. You'll hear it over and over in the days ahead. The room laughs at this. Saul goes on. Oh, by the way, you'll need to memorize and recite this to the cooks before you can get any food later on. More laughter in the room. Saul recites the hymn while those in the room try to follow along. You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. As the scriptures say, I am placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem, chosen for great honor, and anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. But for those who reject him, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone, and he is the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they do not obey God's word, and so they meet the fate that was planned for them. But you are not like that. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, you are now God's people. Once you received no mercy, you have now received God's mercy. Repeating this several times, those in the room become familiar with the hymn. Barnabas smiles and applauds some in the room who are learning the hymn for the first time. Great is the cornerstone who is so deserving of our worship. May it be so? The room responds, may it be so. Thank you, Saul, Barnabas acknowledges his partner in the faith and looks over at a group in the corner of the room. Signaling for them to rise and join him, he says, I want you to know I'm not the only archaic-looking Hebrew in the room. I would like to introduce some guests that have recently arrived from Jerusalem. Appreciating the moment of levity, one of the guests stands to move towards the center of the courtyard. Standing next to each other, Barnabas introduces his guest. I would like to introduce to you Agabus and his friends who have made the long trip here from Jerusalem. Turning to Agabus, he says, I hope you've been able to rest from your trip. Have you eaten enough? Agabus nods his head in appreciation to Barnabas, who seats himself nearby. Thank you for such gracious hospitality. Some of you have welcomed us into your homes, and while life here is quite different than what we're accustomed to, we certainly see the love of God demonstrated through your generous ways. Feeling like he started off on the right foot, Agabus continues, I have been sent by the other apostles in Jerusalem who have wished for me to catch you up with some of the portending realities that we're about to face there. First, on a political front, with Claudius recently becoming Rome's new emperor, Herod Agrippa has also been appointed a large territory to rule over. Agabus grimaces and continues, while we have yet to get a full sense of what this means, we see him connecting with a number of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, including priests, scribes, 
Pharisees, and Sadducees alike. He's becoming friendly with many in the Sanhedrin, attending temple and prayer services with them, reading the Torah along with them, that sort of thing. Overall, he's becoming more admired by conservatives and Hellenists alike in Jerusalem, and these two groups hate each other. He seems to be making friends with all of the Jews in the area. In fact, he's done some pretty impressive things so far. Agabus looks over at Barnabas, who nods for him to continue. He does. Let me explain further. Herod Agrippa was successful at keeping the recently assassinated Emperor Caligula from dedicating the Jerusalem temple to Zeus. The crowd gasps at this news. What do you mean, assassinated? Agabus goes on. I'm sorry, I I thought you already knew. Yes, Caligula was a bit of an unstable man. He threatened to leave Rome after dealing with way too much controversy. He sought to move to Alexandria so that he could be worshipped there as a god, but he never made it. He was stabbed some 30 times by the Praetorian Guard, who then sought to place Emperor Claudius on the throne. They even brutally killed his wife and daughter. Eyes widened. Those in the room look at each other in disbelief. Oh, it gets weirder, Agabus continues. Caligula wanted to place a large statue of himself in a prominent place in the Jerusalem temple, delusionally hoping to be worshipped as a deified emperor. As you can imagine, that didn't sit well with any of the Jews. So when Herod Agrippa intervened, he immediately became the hero in the minds of the Jews, even as a promised Messiah to many of those who had already rejected Jesus as a contender. Well, how does that affect us? One of the members asks. Good question, Agabus responds. While we don't know just yet, it's good to remember the wave of persecution that took place after the stoning of Stephen. Barnabas looks over at Saul, whose face is tightened and eyes closed. Barnabas senses that Saul is reliving the moment. Saul's eyes open, and he sees a concerned Barnabas staring at him, looking for any indication if they should redirect the conversation. Agabus sees the nonverbal exchange between Saul and Barnabas and realizes what's happening. He looks over at Saul and asks, I'm sorry to bring up such a sore subject, Saul. Should I... Saul interrupts while gesturing to the room. They've heard me say this before. They know my shame, but they also know God's victory in me. Using this moment to address the group, Saul stands in his place. Folks, you know that I was in large part responsible for the Sanhedrin's policy change to hunt down, arrest, try, and destroy the Christ followers in Jerusalem. This forced a number of believers in Jerusalem to scatter across the eastern Mediterranean, including here in Antioch. Yet you also remember my direct encounter with the Lord, who struck me blind on the way to Damascus and transformed me through the Holy Spirit. Barnabas stands to interject. The beautiful thing about God's providence here is that you here in this room have heard the good news about Jesus, somewhat in part because of what happened in Jerusalem a few years back. What was intended to be harmful, God has used for his greater purposes. All heads nod in affirmation. Sensing the room, Agabus looks at the affirming Saul and Barnabas and continues, While the persecution was intense for a while, it has since died down. Well, that is until now. With Herod Agrippa newly on the scene, the pressure is mounting once again because he has united the Jews so well. We believers are high on a short list of the ones hated most by the Jews. 
Agabus lets this sink in before going on. What is further troubling is that the food costs continue to rise because of the poor harvests in both Palestine and Egypt. Egypt, as you know, produces much of the grain that we receive, and with the recent issue of flooding, their crops have dwindled, driving up the costs of grain. These costs go beyond what many of us can manage, and with such a small job market afforded to believers, we're unable to afford food. Unfortunately, this grain shortage will impact much of our area, and it might even affect a large commercial hub like Antioch. Coming to a knee, Barnabas then places his hand on the shoulder of the person next to him to stand. Folks, this is the real deal. A food shortage will put those in Jerusalem in a bad spot. We need to do something for those who have given their very lives to make it possible for you to have both Saul and me here. Your lives have been changed by the Spirit of God when you committed yourself to following Jesus, and you have been welcomed into his family. This wouldn't have been possible had it not been for the dedication of those in Jerusalem. He lets this sink in. The room is tense, not knowing how to respond. Finally, someone speaks out. What do you need? With Saul joining Barnabas in the middle of the courtyard, he says, If you have your own needs met, please give to those who will be without in Jerusalem. Barnabas follows up. Yes, if you have the means to give generously, then please give to the people in Jerusalem. Wait a moment, one of the members in the congregation asks. He looks at Agabus and says, In all deference to you, Agabus, we're very appreciative of you letting us know what is happening and what is needed in Jerusalem. But we're pretty indebted to Saul and Barnabas, who've invested in us over the past year. Please don't take offense to this, but I think we would do well to have Saul and Barnabas take what we end up giving to Jerusalem, specifically the elders, on our behalf. The room grows quiet. Eventually, Barnabas circles around to see those in the room around him. By a show of hands, does anybody else feel this way? Saul looks around to see nearly every hand go up in the room. Barnabas looks at Agabus and says, I hope this is agreeable to you. Agabus smiles and says, look, of course, they know and trust you to do right by them. We just wanted to be faithful to our role here. Folks, we're going to go ahead and stop here and recognize Agabus, and then we're going to get to uh, the meat of all this. Agabus is a unique figure in the early church. Both here and later in Acts chapter 21, Agabus plays a role of speaking for God. Here in Acts 11, Agabus appeals to the warning signs of famine happening throughout Judea and the Palestinian region, and travels some 15 plus days to Antioch to share the coming need of the disciples in Jerusalem. Later in Acts 21, Agabus hears of Paul's arrival in Caesarea Maritime, so he travels there as well to warn Paul of his arrest in Jerusalem. Let me just share a real quick and important side note about Agabus as a prophet and the role of a prophet. Agabus is simply one who shares what he sees happening around him. He observes and identifies issues even before they come to a head. Is this a gift from God? You bet. Now, does that mean that Agabus only needs to hear from God and not identify with what is going on around him at any given time? Could Agabus identify these issues with while being shut off from the rest of the world? No. 
Agabus is quite astute at discerning the present issues and forecasting what will become a thing should they continue without intervention. In this instance, Agabus recognizes the sign of trouble and is most likely sent along with the others by the leaders in Jerusalem to plead to those in Antioch for help. If you've been listening to the previous podcast or reading the blog, you probably have noticed some of the interesting dynamics taking place between some of the prominent groups here in Acts. Hopefully, you've seen the rub between three particular groups of people now, the unbelieving Jews, the believing Jews, and the Gentiles. Unbelieving Jews have taken a very hard stance against the movement of Christ-following Jews. We've seen this recur throughout Acts so far when Peter and John were arrested and tried by the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4 and again in Acts chapter 5. The situation worsens when the Christ followers assemble to worship and teach in the temple every day. Threatened by the numerical loss of formerly committed Jewish followers to the likes of these uneducated Christ-following teachers, those of pedigree become increasingly jealous and resort to more devious means to rid themselves of this growing nuisance. They confront, arrest, try, stone Stephen, who is a committed Christ follower, as a precedent for future Sanhedrin policy. Moving away from a stance that indicated a level of tolerance, the Sanhedrin has since authorized Saul, who at the time was an upwardly moving Pharisee, to take on a more offensive role in the effort to root out all Christ followers in Jerusalem, Judea, and other cities with a large number of Jewish inhabitants, such as those in Damascus, Acts 7-9. through 9. Now, curiously, the Jewish Christ followers who were on the receiving side of such harsh treatment from the Jewish authorities are now upset with the idea of Gentiles becoming followers of Christ. In first century Palestine, traditional Jews and Jewish Christ followers alike lived in cloistered environments, in many cases free from Gentile interaction. For many reasons, Jews with strong Hasmonean backgrounds stayed clear of the Gentile-occupied cities and Gentiles themselves, refusing to interact with them altogether. Many of these Jews, guided by the law of Moses, devoted themselves to following Christ. And so, when Peter, Saul, Barnabas, and others witness a supernatural movement of God among the Gentiles, they piece together the puzzling parables taught to them by Jesus himself. See Matthew 20, verse 1 through 16, 21, verse 33 through 46, 22, verses 1 through 14, and even John 10, 16, and realize that Jesus prepared them for this coming movement of God among the Gentiles. What's even harder for this group of Jewish Christ followers is the fact that God is rolling out the new covenant promises whereby the law of Moses is going away for good. Believing in Messiah is one thing. Removing the need for the law of Moses because a superior covenant has been unleashed is quite another. See Hebrews 8, 5-13. As we move further along in Acts, you'll find this to be the central issue in the early church. Jewish Christ followers, in many ways, see themselves as more educated, more knowledgeable, and morally superior to their Gentile counterparts. See Romans 2, 17-29. Consequently, these attitudes of superiority have blinded the Jewish Christ followers to the movement of God happening right in front of them. 
which is the same issue Jesus dealt with when repeatedly confronting the Jews. See Matthew 21:41-46. Ironically, it's these quote-unquote less educated and morally inferior Gentiles who are now bailing out their condescending brothers and sisters. What's amazing in all of this? Despite the fact that these Gentile believers are being snubbed by many of their Jewish believing counterparts, the Gentiles rally together and provide for their brothers and sisters in a deep time of need. They don't hesitate to give. Those who weren't accepted by the Jewish believers in the first place are the ones bailing the Jewish believers out. How amazing that the love of Christ is found in these Gentiles who know so little about God. Ironic, right? Martin Luther King Jr. said it this way, Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And we see the love of Christ showing up in these Gentile believers in Antioch. Well, that's it for this week, guys. Have a wonderful week, and we'll see you soon. Bye.